Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Yeah, here we are, week two of a whole series uh, that's going to be taking us into incredible, amazing uh, encounters with the living Jesus. And uh, this week we're going to talk about uh, two very interesting characters in Scripture, one of them in John 4, one of them in John 3, but we'll get there in a moment. I think throughout the Gospels we find uh, an amazing spread of people that Jesus happens to encounter. Now we, you know, looking back in time and over so many uh, continents and centuries and whatever, we think, I mean, like all the Jews are the same. But in Jesus' day, obviously, he was meeting people like you and I. And even though we might be like one community, and, we, and people from the outside look at us and say, oh, they're all the same. All these Christians, they're all the same. Uh, but actually, we're not. Every one of us has a uniqueness about us. Jesus was connecting with a spread of people. Some of them, very ordinary, everyday people. Others, prominent, affluent, powerful people. Their word, their deed could change the shape of the way things were happening. Then he also had to do, he, he also dealt with people who were desperate and the people that others would look at and say, but these people are actually despicable. Why would Jesus want to engage with someone like that? The whole spread, Jesus <laughs> engages willingly, gladly, uh, and fully, and he encounters, they encounter him at the space where real life happens. Um, and as you look through the Gospels and you read the stories of Jesus and what he said and what he did, you, can, you come to realize that this man is no ordinary man. Also, as you read through the Bible, you discover this book is no ordinary book. Because this book actually is a facilitator of encounters with God. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 about this book. He says, the word of God. Is living and effective. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's life there. There's personality there. There's intention. There's a desire to engage and to be open for engagement. This is what the scriptures take us to. It's not, C.S. Lewis, I think, was one of the guys who said, we come to scripture not just to learn a subject, but to steep ourselves in a person. And I'm trusting that's what's happening with you as you're going through the gospels, as you're reading the scriptures, you're discovering how the Bible opens up opportunities for conversation with Jesus and encounters with him in a way that nothing else on earth can do. Now, in most of the conversations that Jesus is having, like Maurice mentioned this morning, the one with his, uh, his disciples, Jesus is asking very simple but extremely significant questions. And here in John 4 and 5, we're going to be going through some of those questions. For example, some of the questions he, that he is dealing with is questions that you and I have, like why is there a creation and why is why is creation? Why is there a world? Um, the, the possibility is that, it, well, if you really take seriously this whole random chance over time thing, there's a very high possibility that nothing could have existed. Here we are. Why is there a world? And then we look at the world and it doesn't seem the way it's supposed to be. And we ask, what's wrong with the world? How did it get to be the way it is? And how, and what can we do, if anything, to, to turn it? 
into the right direction, start making things right again. And what part can I play in making stuff right in this world for other people? Where do we go for answers for this in the first place? So Jesus in his conversations is also dealing with those questions. And he's dealing with people who have those questions. And once you've discovered or once you've studied these, uh, th- these conversations, these encounters that Jesus has, you actually as an individual are also still left with another question. What does this mean for my life? That was then. That was him. That was those people. But reading it today and engaging with Jesus today, what does it mean for my life? How can I also encounter Jesus centuries after that conversation? And how does that conversation open up for me an encounter with Jesus? The gospel says that we're saved. We're changed forever. Not by what we do. (laughs) Not even (laughs) by what Jesus says to the people there. But what he has done For us, if that transformation, if that encounter hasn't happened yet, reading scripture is supposed to take you to that kind of encounter. The story of Jesus is supposed to draw you into conversation with him so that things can be changed. Now we see a whole bunch of stuff in the major events of his life, how the things that he did radically altered the course of history and the conversation about life that we can have with each other and with him. He has accomplished a salvation in our place. That was probably the most significant contribution of his life to this, to the human, the human race. The fact that he established, brought about the possibility of total restoration for every individual into the fullness of what we were intended to become. He made that possible. To engage with him, to have an encounter with him for that purpose. (laughs) It's life-changing. You can't not encounter him for that purpose. Now seeing this, can move us from an acquaintance with Jesus and the stories about the people into a conversation and an encounter with the living Christ on a day-to-day basis. We're going to go to two people. Uh, In John 3, we have the story of an insider, uh, and in John 4, we have the story of an outcast and how Jesus' engagement with them, encounter with them, radically changed their lives and radically transformed communities. So we're going to go into those conversations now. Uh, And in this story, we're probably going to look at, in the background, running through the backdrop of this entire story, is the question, what's wrong with the world? Why is it the way it is? And here we have two people who we can see who they are and what they do are actually contributors to the way their world was at that stage. Then we're going to move on to, in the weeks that come, the conversations on, okay, now that we've seen this, now that we've discovered how he can change individuals, how do we as individuals then grow into changing the the environment and the people and the relationships in which we come? In John 3, the insider, we have Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? Those of you who read the story will have remembered him. Um, But he and the... Women at the well, John 4, 
actually, John is putting these two stories next to each other to help us to grasp that actually these two people have something in common. Now, just reading it on the surface, you might think, <laughs> what on earth does Nicodemus, a highly respected religious leader in a very God-fearing community, what does he have to do, what does he have in common with a woman who... By all intents and purposes, when you read the story of where she was and what she did, you can discover this woman is not an upstanding member of the community. In fact, she's an outcast in her own community. And that community wasn't necessarily a fine, upstanding community by all standards. Now, so, so what do these two have in common? And the reason why John is putting these two on either side of each other is helping us to get a handle on what we have in common with them. Now, later on, we're going to talk about what we have in common with them. But let's go there now first. These two people, they appear to be so different. But actually, there's no way that we can talk about these two people without going into a conversation on sin. So for those of you who are in church checking it out and wondering if it can work for you, you're probably realizing, okay, so this is where the conversation goes. Every Sunday, every time I get around religious people, there's a conversation on sin. <laughs> now, words like sin and sinner, I know, they, they carry something of a cultural baggage with them, Right? And particularly those of you who come from a white Afrikaans community, this is a, like a major theme of most conversations when it gets to church and the Bible and stuff like that. Uh, so I can understand that you may feel this is not the conversation I wanted to be in this morning. Uh, but you do need to realize, of course, that the word sin and sinner, they're actually legitimate words. Unfortunately, a lot of people are using them in illegitimate ways. They're using them as a foundation to make themselves look good. They're using them as a, like a little platform to step up on so that they can look down on other people who are not measuring up to what they think righteousness is supposed to be. When sin is used that way, when the name sinner is used in that way, it normally recoils on the one that's using it. So I would suggest that we refrain or that we use the word sin and sinner legitimately rather than as something to support our own understanding of how good we are in God's sight. So if you have ever felt marginalized and objectified by religious people who look at you and say, sinner, you don't measure up, I want to apologize right up front for that. I want to apologize because that's not the way Jesus used the word or the concept. In fact, Jesus went even further, and Jesus' understanding of what sin and sinners are is far more radical than any religious person could ever have made you feel or think. Unfortunately, uh, the, the reticence you have about sin, you're not even close to what God has in terms of his view on what sin is and what sinners are and how people get there. But let me put this in context for you through these two stories. The outcasts encounter with Jesus, normally it starts us off in John 4, the woman at the well, starts us off at a place where most people can connect and identify and say, yeah, mm, yeah the label sinner, it fits. But then we go to 
a picture of sin in John 3 in a setting that hardly anyone expects to find it. In the heart and the mind and the conversation and the worldview of this religious leader. No one expects to find sin in that setting. So we're going to look at the two of them this morning. Let's start with the outcast. The woman at the well, John chapter 4. Jesus traveling with his disciples goes through a a geographical area called Samaria. It's really not the nicest place to be for Jewish people anyway. For the Samaritans, it was fine. I mean, there's a home. Who we are is what we got. But for the Jews, it was, you you don't go through that territory. Like those GPSs that take you through places that you really didn't want to go through. Jesus, unfortunately, like that, he went through one of those places. And he got to this little town. He was weary. He was thirsty. He sits down at, the, at, at a well. And now he's thirsty, but he's got nothing to draw water out of the well with. So there he is. His disciples go into town looking for a spaza or something to go and get something to eat. Or what, do you? Yeah? No? Okay, never mind. Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. So... And here, it's around about noon, it's midday, it's the worst part of the day, and a solitary woman comes walking towards Jesus with, uh, obviously, a, a, a pitcher on her shoulder to get ready to draw water. When she arrives, Jesus starts the conversation with her. Will you give me a drink? You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him to give you a drink. So you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, (laughs) Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as it also his sons and his livestock? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You're right. When you say that you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now living with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Wow. I can see that you are a prophet. Now, before the conversation goes any further, let me jump in here and just inform you, thanks guys, of how radical this conversation actually is. It's a very unlikely conversation for the setting at that time. You and I, we look at this conversation, we think, okay, good, great, two people who don't know each other in conversation about life and stuff and, you know, spiritual things. But in that, in that setting, this was so, so radical. I mean... <laughs> Notice her shock when he starts to speak to her. Um, Why? Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. She knew he was Jewish, and she knew he had something of a religious connotation, the way he was dressed. She knew this guy 
He's part of church. He's part of Jewish. Uh, he's got nothing to do with us. We're enemies. Uh, the Samaritans were actually a half-breed tribe that started or came into being while Israel for 70 years was out in Babylon in captivity. The dregs of society were left behind. And they started to intermarry with the Canaanites that were there. And they established this kind of syncretistic religion with anything goes, kind of what have you. And some of it was Jewish and some of it was definitely not. Probably bluish or whatever. So, <laughs> definitely not what God intended. So now when the Jews came back from exile, these people who had started settling towards the area of the city of Samaria, the Jews actually didn't want anything to do with these guys. They were, as far as the Jews were concerned, racially inferior. And they were religiously heretics. Uh, so they really wanted nothing to do with them. Now, what's more, she comes to the well to draw water at noon. They didn't normally do that. Women came early in the morning or in the, in the evening. If you've seen Jungle Book, you know that's the way it works. Early in the morning, late in the evening, that's when they come to draw water. Just kidding. But why was she there alone in the middle of the day? Scholars tell us that uh, she was a moral outcast as well. She didn't want to be where the other women were. And you've just heard probably why she wouldn't want to be where the other women were. Five husbands. Man, <laughs> Yo, I can imagine she was the topic of conversation in many a tea garden. So even within her own marginalized setting, she is an outcast. Why is Jesus even bothering to start a conversation with someone like this? I mean, he crosses every barrier and convention that's in his way uh, in terms of race, in terms of religion, in terms of even gender. I mean, Jewish men didn't speak to strange women on the street in, places, in public places. It was taboo, a Jewish rabbi even less. They're enjoying that. That's okay. As long as they're enjoying it, we're happy for them. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> so a conversation that's very unlikely moves to a very intriguing confrontation. Can you hear the way the confrontation is going? Did you see the sudden move that Jesus made? Just like lifting the conversation to a whole new level of getting like personal. Um, it was theoretical, and it was polite and maybe social, and then suddenly it got personal. But she, at that point, discovers, and she is intrigued by what she discovers about this, this man who's talking to her. What is Jesus actually talking about, this whole thing of living water? Well, of course, <laughs> he's using a metaphor so that she can discover the reality of what he has to offer the living water, eternal life. Now, for us, that image is lost. I mean, we all come from places where you open a tap and water runs. But in the Middle East at that time, and in many other rural environments, in different places in the world, you really had to go somewhere to get hold of clean, clear water. And what we miss, of course, is that we have... Not just water on tap. I mean, we have oasis and whoever knows what, walk into Woolies, take bottles of water off the shelf. We don't know what it feels like to be thirsty. We don't know what real thirst is. Real thirst is actually so painful, it disrupts 
the, the balances of every process in your body. It's destructive. Real thirst can destroy you. And it drives you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. So what is Jesus saying to this woman in terms of this thirst, this water? He says, well, I have something to offer you that is as basic and as necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically. Something without which you are absolutely lost and you cannot sustain your life. But the metaphor of water is telling even more about He's saying that what he has to offer is life-saving, but it's also satisfying at a deeper level than just getting your thirst quenched. He's talking about a satisfaction that lies deeper than the thirst. Now, if I were to ask you a question, what is it that would really or does really make you happy? I would hazard a guess that most of you would be referencing stuff that is on the outside of who you are. Would be referencing stuff that is as yet probably not yet attained or may be attainable if all goes well. Are there students here? Yeah, there are a couple. Cool. When I asked you what would make you happy... I think most of your answers would gravitate towards good grades, finally graduating and being able to start out in life kind of thing, right? Yeah, that's pretty much where the desire, this would make me happy. It's on the outside of you. It's something that needs to happen out there. It's not something that's happening in here. Jesus comes and he moves that thing and he says, Nothing can satisfy your thirst, that kind of thirst, the thing that really makes you happy. Nothing can satisfy that unless it comes from a place deeper than where the thirst comes from. Most of us aren't even able to recognize what we thirst for because what we say makes us happy changes from time to time. Changes from season to season. Changes from boyfriend to boyfriend. Job to job. What makes us happy is constantly changing. No wonder we're constantly unhappy. You see, Jesus is also saying that whatever it is that is out there that you believe will make you happy, it's setting you up for disappointment. Not only will it disappoint you, but it has every possibility that it will actually destroy you. I mean, what do you think, guys? What do you think I have in common with Boris Becker? Apart from the physique, apart from... (laughs) Yeah, let's not go there. What do you have in common with Boris Becker? (laughs) We serve. (laughs) On the money. Interestingly enough, Boris Becker, in in a conversation, uh, he's quoted. And here are some of the words that he said. I had won Wimbledon twice. At that point in his life, he was talking about this. I'd won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player ever. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. He says, it's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner 
peace. Interesting. You're probably sitting there and say, <laughs> I'd prefer his problems to mine. I, don't, I think what you don't realize is that his problem is your problem. The difference is he had the money and the opportunity to reach the goals he had in mind, which he thought would make him happy. And once he'd achieved those, he realized those things are not making me happy. He still had a thirst. And there was no way to quench that thirst because the only way to quench the thirst is to have water coming from a place deeper than the thirst. Everybody lives for something. And Jesus is actually saying, if it's not me that you're living for, that thing is going to fail you. And that thing is probably going to destroy you. Whatever it is will enslave you. Whatever it is, it will keep you on the treadmill of performance trying to achieve it. Whatever it is, when it gets threatened, you will become afraid. And insecure. Whatever it is, if it gets blocked and kept from you, you will become aggressive and angry and you will pursue it with even more energy. But if you achieve it, the chances are it will fail to deliver what you expected it would deliver. Now, David Foster Wallace, American writer, award winning, best selling postmodern novelist known around the world for his boundary-pushing storytelling. He wrote a sentence once that was over a thousand words long. I mean, that's <laughs> to, to write a sentence that long that makes sense, that's, that's some doing. You really need to know your language to be able to do that. And a few years before the end of his life, he's no longer with us, um, he's, he was giving a speech at Kenyon College where he was saying to the graduate class, and I have some of the, the, the phrases up here. He says... Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, this guy is not religious. He's not a pastor. He's not a churchman. He says, the compelling reason maybe for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being find out, found out. But listen, to, listen to this line. This is the kicker. He says, look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. They are unconscious. They are default settings. Wallace was not a religious person. But he understood that everyone worships. And he understood that everyone trusts in something or someone for their salvation. The word salvation meaning wholeness, well-being, fulfillment. Everyone bases their lives on something that requires faith. Even if it is faith in self. 
Now, a couple of years after that speech, Wallace committed suicide. This non-religious man's parting words, they're pretty terrifying. He's literally saying, something, whatever it is that you choose to worship, will eat you alive. It will destroy you. And even if you think, no, it's not worship, you may not call it worship. But Jesus says, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless I'm the source of that living water, your spiritual thirst is never going to get quenched. Unless you see that the solution must come from inside and not from out there. Unless you see that, whatever you worship will suck you in and spit you out and abandon you in the end. This woman was confronted with an opportunity to change. And we often forget that we can change and We miss an opportunity to change because we are convinced we can fulfill our own dreams. And when that happens, it's easy to walk past Jesus. It's easy to walk past an opportunity to change. But this woman had no such illusions. She realized, I need this living water. And then Jesus comes and turns the tables on her. I mean, at the point where she's saying, okay, tell me more. He says, go get your husband. Why would he want to do something like that? I mean, he was so close. He was there. He had her taking the next step, and then he changes the subject. Why? Ah, yes, you see, because Jesus was this righteous rabbi, and now he's humiliating this this sinful woman. No, he's not. He would not have gone to the trouble of opening up the conversation and leading it that way if his intention was to humiliate her. What he wanted her to do is to see what it was that she thought was going to bring fulfillment into her life. Intimacy with a quality man. Every woman has that desire. Every woman is set up to look for that. The problem that she did not realize was... The solution was coming from out there while the thirst was deep in here. Jesus is saying, the intimacy that you long for in a man, I am that man. You need to find a quality relationship with me that is far deeper, that lies far more fundamentally within your spiritual nature than your desire for intimacy with a lifelong companion, a husband. If you haven't found that, no husband will do. No matter how good he is, somewhere along the line, you're going to be disappointed in him or he's going to drop you and leave you. If you haven't found fulfillment in relationship with him. If you want to understand what Jesus has to offer, you first need to understand where you are looking for that fulfillment. Once you've made that connection, then you realize what it is that he has to offer. So at this point, she goes discovering that he knows something of her inner life. She goes into this religious talk about, you know, being a prophet and this kind of stuff and worship, you know, the the Jews and the Samaritans worship differently. So which church is the right church? And Jesus cuts through all of that and he says, no, no, 
It's got nothing to do with which church is the right church. It's got everything to do with the possibility of being able to connect with God, worshiping from inside, from spirit and truth. It's not a time-space matter-based thing, this thing called worship. When you reduce it to a time-space matter experience, you lose the essence of what worship is truly all about. It's not limited to what's out there, what's happening around. It actually means connecting with him deep within. And then she says, okay, when the Messiah comes, this is the kind of thing that he's going to explain to us, and then he'll sort everything out for us. And then Jesus puts literally, drops the mic when he says, I am he. I'm not finished yet. I've only been through one story. But I think some of you have heard enough. Maybe we should just take a stand. Let's just stand. Can I give you a minute of silence? Where you ask yourself, so what do I have in common with this woman? And take that to Jesus. As you're standing, won't you invite him in to that place within you that lies even deeper than your thirst? Won't you invite him to come and give you living water that will never run dry, a well that will be literally an eternal source of fulfillment so that you never thirst again, so that nothing else, no one else, nowhere else can provide what it is that he can. We're almost through, but I have two more stories to tell you. So you're welcome to take your seats. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I didn't realize. I didn't realize I, that there was like a cue for you guys. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. By the way, what time do you guys normally finish up here? This is my first time here. You finish now. Now. Okay. One <laughs> there are some of you who are not going to make that curfew. 
John 3, you've probably heard the story where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this religious leader, and uh, it, he approaches this conversation totally different to the way he approaches the conversation with the woman at the well. This guy comes to Jesus by night. He also doesn't want to be seen, by the way, because he's afraid that his bona fides will probably become coming under suspicion as a result of him being in conversation with Jesus. So he's talking to Jesus, and Jesus literally cuts in through all the courtesy and the nice chit-chat. And we, Rabbi, we know that you're a man sent from God. Very open-minded, very accommodating, very, you know, almost, um, <laughs> how should we say? Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'm looking for the word, and I've lost it now. <laughs> it, 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 very patronizing. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. Thanks, Taiki. So here, here, this conversation, Jesus cuts through all of that stuff, and he says, truly, I tell you, without being born again, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, and you can't enter into or engage with the kingdom of God. Kind of weird. Now, that's where that phrase born again comes from. And whatever it is that you think born again may mean, uh, let, let's not go into that conversation now. Let's go into what Jesus was trying to say to Nicodemus up front. He uses this metaphor of being born again in a way that's very unflattering. Um, you know, literally, he's asking Nicodemus, um, who is this upstanding religious member of the, of the community. He's a civic leader. He's a member of the, uh, almost like the, the, the top church structure. He's Part of the Hebrew high court judges in terms of civic justice and so on. He's prosperous. He's devout. He's an upstanding Pharisee. You couldn't have any more religious bona fides than he. And he's not an emotionally broken person at all. He's not an outcast. In fact, he is the reference of what it means to be an insider. And Jesus cuts through all of this. And he's asking, instead of pressing Nicodemus on his lack of satisfaction, he's pressing Nicodemus on something else, on his perceived self-satisfaction. So Jesus is asking this whole thing of being born again. Questions that arise are obviously things like, so, so who asks to be born? Who plans how to be born? When and where to be born? No. This is something that is totally out of your hands. Someone else does something for you in order that you may enter into life. He's cutting through Nicodemus's understanding that our salvation is self-made. We make the choice. We put in the hard work. We read the Bible. We pray. We attend church. We do the right stuff. And God is then obliged through our performance to bless us and to save us. Jesus is cutting through all of that. And he's saying, you did nothing to be born. You planned nothing to be born. You did not ask to be born that life was a gift that was bestowed upon you without you doing anything to achieve it. All you needed to do was to receive it. This is where that conversation is going. And strangely enough, there's a disturbing comparison here. In John 3 and John 4, as little as Nicodemus did to become the recipient of the gift that God gave salvation 
He's in the same boat as the woman at the well. In fact, he's in the same boat as everybody else in the world in need of God's gift of salvation. There's a disruptive challenge here at the core of this thing. Sin is looking to something or someone else other than God for your well-being. Sin is trusting something, someone else other than Christ for your well-being. And the strange thing about it is that everybody finds themselves there. The challenge that both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman had to realize is they both need the grace of God. Go to the end here, an opportunity to change. Every other savior other than Jesus is not a savior. Every other hope other than Jesus is no hope at all. Every other thing that you gain will disappoint you. But when you gain Jesus, he will never fail you. He will never disappoint you. And if you fail him, he will forgive you. Your career, your moral performance, everything else, if you fail it, it will bite you. For Jesus, he will forgive you. Now let's land this conversation with the peace that is between these two stories. It contains one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. After the conversation in, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we move to a conversation where John is recording what Jesus said. And verse 16 of John 3, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We miss the rest of the conversation if we don't read further. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now this bit of disconcerting news, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, some of you might say, well, I thought this is where it would go. Now you're putting a line down and you're excluding people because what they believe is different. No, no, no. I, I think we need to go to what the word believes really means. And the story that Jesus is telling Nicodemus, before we go to that slide, the story that Jesus is telling Nicodemus, let's go back once, there we go, before he gets to this place, is the story of the snakes in the desert in Israel's camp. I don't know if you remember that story. Yeah. Israelites murmuring against God. They're saying it was much better to stay in Egypt. There at least we had plenty of food. And then God says, I don't think you remember what it was like in Egypt. Let me help you to remember what it was like in Egypt. And suddenly they move into an area where there are cobras. Like a nest of them. Like all over the place. And these guys realize... They, they make the connection. The cobra, the emblem on Pharaoh's crown. God is reminding them, guys, this is what it feels like 
to live under that reality. I mean, they're dying, they're suffering, they're ill. They call out to God for grace and forgiveness. And Moses goes to God and God says, it's okay, I'm going to forgive them. I'm not going to continue to wipe them out. And then Moses says, okay, so are you going to take the snakes away? And God says, no, I'm going to leave the snakes there. What I'm going to do is in the midst of the snakes, I'm going to put down a reference to which they can look and build a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and when people see it physically, they will experience physical healing. So Jesus makes the connection for Nicodemus. As Moses put the serpent up, whoever sees it receives healing, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Seeing and believing are parallel processes. Seeing with the eye, believing with the heart, parallel processes. Like I see and get healed, so I believe or trust that what God is saying, firstly through the snake on the pole, will translate into my physical healing. When I look at the snake on the pole, I experience physical healing. So I trust that what God is saying through Jesus on the cross, when I believe, trust, embrace, accept that that is true, I become someone who is healed and restored and brought to salvation. That's what believing actually means. Trusting in him. Embracing, accepting the truth of what he has to say above all else. Should not perish. Obviously, snake venom in your veins is disruptive to every fiber of your being. You need that to be stopped. Eternal life. What Jesus did on the cross, he fully restored and brought about in his blood the antivenom for sin. Eternal life is a quality of life that makes you immune to the venom of sin. Condemnation is not God's agenda. The problem, however, is that when we refuse his solution, we actually condemn ourselves to pain and destruction. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Let's bow our heads and let's land it here. Thank you, Maurice. Band, you're welcome. So this morning, the encounter that the woman at the well had with Jesus reminded her that where she was looking was inadequate to satisfy the depth of her thirst. Quality relationship with God. This morning, your encounter with Jesus needs to take you to the same place. The conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus was a reminder, literally, that by being born, you are not the one who dictates. You are not the one who chooses. You are the one who enters into what has already been provided for you. And you embrace that by trusting, believing that what he said 
is so and that what he wants to do will be done I want to pray with you and then Taika will come and land the morning Father thank you that in Christ you provided for us living water that from deep within us his presence can be felt deeper than any place that I may thirst thank you that that water brings about restoration in every facet of my life so that I never thirst again thank you for the new birth thank you that you have invited us to enter into the kingdom with you to see what you're doing to work with you walk with you watch how you're doing it thank you for that invitation to the kingdom through the new birth we embrace that this morning in Jesus name